Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, we are so excited to bring you an interview with Jamie Berger, one of the filmmakers behind one of the most important recent films about animal agriculture, The Smell of Money. The movie only recently became available on streaming sites. So after you listen to this interview, you can actually watch the film, which you are definitely going to want to do. Marianne, you have been going on and on about this interview, mostly to rub it in that you're the one who did it and I didn't. Fortunately, the film is available to both of us. I I have been waiting for a long time to see this film because the buzz around it has been really, really big. But, you know, they had a long period of time where they were showing it at festivals and universities, which is great, but never in an area that I was. So... I was really excited to see it. Of course, it's not fun, but it's a really good movie. I just think that the approach they've taken is really, really good. And the impact of this, the emotional impact of it is really, really good. You know, when they're centering the people in that area, Eastern North Carolina, which is where the film takes place. It's a documentary, of course. And it's about pig farming. A lot of stuff I didn't know. Uh, I I mean, I won't repeat any of it now because you'll be hearing it in in the interview, but it was very enlightening. And it was also just very moving. And and I think by centering, this is such a key to activism, centering the people and their story. And their story is really just infuriating and tragic, but not turning your back on the animals. There's an art there and they hit it perfectly, I think, because people who aren't animal rights activists and perhaps who eat pork, they do not want to hear about the animals, but they might want to hear about what's going on with people and people like stories about people. And as long as you incorporate the animals, show sympathy for the animals, you do not have to center them. And it's actually a really good way to reach people, I think. I thought the movie was brilliant. I hope everybody goes online to see it down now that it is available to all of us. And it's a great interview. She's a lovely person. Yes, Jamie's incredible. And that is so exciting. It's funny because last week we were talking about how in You Are What You Eat, the chef, Daniel Hum, the chef of Eleven Madison, the very fancy pants restaurant in New York City, which is fully plant-based, was talking about how you should not talk about the health when appealing to people's sensibilities regarding veganism. And of course, we know you maybe shouldn't talk about animal rights, depending upon your circumstance. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. I'm just saying strategically, a lot of people say that. And so I love that this is a kind of new take on it, because as activists, we tend to think that, oh, there's the animals, there's there's the health argument, there's environment, bam. But there are so many more things. Well, and this is essentially an environmental argument. It's focusing on environmental issues, but not as so often happens in a in a really scientific, this is how the world is ending, you know, that can shut people down, but really human-centric and the impact of these hog farms on on the people who live near them. It's just, it's like unbelievable. It is unbelievable what we do. No, I mean, I get, I get it. I, I get it. <laughs> It just never ends, you know, like you find out one thing and then it's more and more and more. I mean, I kind of knew about this, but, you know, a film can really bring things home that you kind of know about, but not, you know, you don't have that emotional connection. And this movie really has the emotional connection. So let's, before we get to it, let's just chat briefly about these two articles that you found, which are really interesting. Yeah, they're not brand new. Right, right. But put together, I like the, I like kind of the conversation. Well, also, like, because this particular episode is about this movie, one of the facts that, you know, I said I wasn't going to give it all away, but one of the facts, and, you know, you're aware of this, but maybe not to the extent of, of what's wrong here is that America has become the factory farm for the world. Like, we're, we're raising all of these pigs. We're destroying our people's lives. We're destroying our countryside in order to send pork mostly to China, which, you know, owns Smithfield now. And so there's that factor, which means that we're not even destroying America just to feed Americans unbelievable amounts of meat. We're destroying America to feed the rest of the world unbelievable amounts of meat too. But these articles... One of which, uh, you know, I was sent this by Stuart David, who was the very first guest on our hen house. Which was 14 years ago this month, by the way. It was among a number of articles he has sent me and, and written on these particular topics. But this one I wanted to focus on because it's it's talking about how 
It's from Rich Cotavis. I'll just give you the title. Continued decline in U.S. meat consumption is long-term industry disruption, creating significant opportunity. And I'm like, there's a decline in U.S. meat consumption. Everything that we hear is that factory farming is growing and growing, that we're, you know, plant-based foods are not having the impact that we want them to, to. Like people are eating Impossible Burgers and Beyond Burgers. I know why I certainly am. But, you know, not enough. They're not taking... But and here we are. Like, this is an article about how U.S. meat consumption is declining. It says here, retail sales data from, from this organization reveals that 2023 marks the second consecutive year of declining meat purchase volumes. So they're talking about what's going on in the U.S. and people are buying less meat. It's just not what we're hearing. So, like, why are all the messages so confusing? And, and don't seem to make sense when you put them side by side. And some of this was also sorted out in this other article by Bjorn Olafsson, which is on um, Sentient Media. Meat consumption is rising, but not in the way you think. And this really does sort out some of these issues. People are eating more meat per person, not nearly as much as the numbers would make you think. And this is really important for us because it just gets so depressing when you hear that. And yet, there's a lot of other stuff going on and two really big things going on. And, you know, he talks about the fact that Peter Singer, I mean, which is, you know, one of the things that started this whole conversation, pointed out in his new, the new version of Animal Liberation, that U.S. meat consumption has actually increased 24% since 1975. And, you know, now we're not even talking about all the, all the animals we're raising and killing to export. We're talking about U.S. meat consumption and 24%, and it's like, oh my God, well, we might as well just go home. But as this article points out, the story is more complicated than that. For one thing, the population has grown. So so actually, though though we're eating more meat, we're, there's more people. So that's only, that's only makes sense. So just the fact of the population has grown means it's only 17% per capita, which is still pretty horrifying. But also, it's waste. The numbers points out only take takes account of how much production there is and how much what they call disappearance there is. That's the amount of meat available for sale in the country minus exports. It's only an approximation. And what's missing are the two places that that meat gets used up in enormous amounts that doesn't get accounted for by these numbers. And they're both depressing. One is pets. Oh my God, 10% of meat ends up in pet food. It's unbelievable. The second number is even more horrifying, and it's food waste. It's 30% of the, all of the meat from all of the animals that are killed in this country end up in the garbage. That's crazy. I know. I mean, I kind of knew that, but like not in specifics and even just like remembering. No, I mean, you kind of hear these words, but the numbers are unbelievable. And you also hear, like I was saying, at the same time, you hear, oh, meat consumption is going up. It all depends on how you look at the numbers. So what do you deduce from all of this? Like, are you feeling more devastated about it or do you find hope in it? Well, I mean, I think both, you know, both. It's horrifying that, especially since, you know, dogs really don't need to be eating meat and probably cats don't, but I'm not going to get into that. You're going to get hate mail. I think people are kind of over that. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't think I'll get hate mail from saying I, you probably I have no will. idea. I mean, why, there are definitely people waiting to <laughs> figure anyway, out something. Anyway, I mean, we're not going to get rid of all the pets. And, you know, so it would be nice if we could talk people into thinking that dogs can be vegan at least. But that's not really a hopeful number. And the, the waste, I mean, everybody knows we have to do something about food waste. And it's insane. But the hopeful part about it is that, uh, particularly of the food waste part, is that this is something that can be addressed, especially if we start eating different foods. Meat and dairy and eggs, they go bad really, really fast. So of course, there's going to be enormous amounts of waste. So actually just addressing the amount will also address the amount of food waste. And the other thing that, you know, does give me hope, or at least is a positive thing, is that number is wrong. They are eating more meat than they ate in the 70s. But when you take all of these qualifications into account, it's not nearly as much more as we thought. And actually, if you then if you look at that Vegconomist article, in the past couple of years, it's actually gone down. So all in all, I think that it it's arguable that we're on a good trajectory. We just have to make it much, much, much faster. But that's much easier than being on a bad trajectory and having to turn it around. 
Did I manage to sound hopeful? People always acclaim me of living in despair, but I think I find lots of hopeful things. Okay, first of all, I don't want to ruin the hopefulness that you just said, because I was about to say this is the second time recently, and both have been in 2024. It's not the second time, like, like... No, let me finish. On. No, let me finish. So we recently went on a tour of Susan B. Anthony's house, because it's here in Rochester, and it was so inspiring to me. Like, I... I went home and downloaded a book from the library on queer suffragettes and I'm obsessed. And I loved, I was so inspired by the fact that she worked and worked and worked and she didn't get to see the fruit of her labor because of course women didn't get the right to vote till something like 13 years after she died. Anyway, when you and I were in in the museum, the, the store part, my favorite part of any museum, you said that she probably had reason to hope when she died because there was momentum. She got a lot of attention. She got a lot of, I'm not sure she had like actual success, but the trajectory, I agree. The tour guide said like 10,000 people showed up when she died to pay respects. 10,000, you know, think of an animal rights activist. Like they'll come up to, you know, throw rotten eggs. Oh, wow. Okay, I should have like, Quit, quit while I was ahead. <laughs> but anyway, I, you know, it is very inspiring to read about the suffragette movement. And if people are looking for something to kind of dig into, that's a good one. Because obviously there are still so many problems, but when we count our victories for what they are, that is definitely among them. And it was a fascinating trajectory, the suffragettes. The thing that I think is so positive about it, and I tend to overstate this a little bit because some states had given women the vote before the amendment was passed. But the fact is, is that the vast majority of people who voted to give women the vote were by necessity men because they were the only ones who could who could vote. Not literally true because there were some states and, you know, they had to be passed by the state legislatures. So that really gives me hope. But, you know, like that wasn't like self-interest unless somebody was getting in trouble with their wife or something. But my favorite story about that, which I'm sure I've told before, like this, this young legislator in his first year in Tennessee, and that was the last state that, you know, the whole thing wrote on on the vote in Tennessee, from what I understand. I'm sorry if this isn't totally historically accurate. He was actually leaning towards voting against. And he was the, the vote. I mean, the, like it was, that's how close the margin was. And people had been in Tennessee the whole summer long campaigning. And so the night before he got a letter from his mother and she told him to do the right thing. And he did. I really love that. I love that so much. And I think that, you know, like people, people love their mothers, people love their animals. Sooner or later, we're going to get there. I'm going to quickly introduce Jamie before you say something negative, because this is a different side of you. And I like it. <laughs> Jamie Berger is the writer and producer of The Smell of Money, an award-winning documentary about North Carolina hog farms and the impact that they have on local communities, the environment, and animals. Born and raised in North Carolina, Jamie has used writing and visual storytelling to draw attention to issues ranging from environmental racism to the climate crisis and other injustices wrought against people and animals and the planet. She will be joining Marianne right after this. The Culture and Animals Foundation sponsors artists, scholars, and activists in our collective efforts to understand our fellow species more deeply and to further their rights. CAF provides annual grants, an arts prize, a lecture series, and a fellowship. Visit cultureandanimals.org for more information. That's cultureandanimals.org, the Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate. Welcome to our hen house, Jamie. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Super excited to have you. I imagine some of our listeners have seen the movie, The Smell of Money, already, but I'm sure most of them have not. And I have to say that they have to soon. I've been waiting so long to see this movie because it has had a long time in theaters and it never just seemed to be in the right place for me to see it because I'm not in the middle of Manhattan anymore. Finally, it has come online and we'll talk about that and where people can watch it. But I've finally been able to see it and it is an amazing movie. It's very disturbing. 
I'm not going to lie to people that this is, <laughs> this is not a lot of fun, but it's so good. And you learn so much about pig industry in North Carolina, which is not a fun topic. Even though it's not fun, you have made it into a story that is about people and it has a through line. And I'm just curious, when you started out, I'm assuming, and maybe I'm wrong, that you started out to make a movie about the pig industry in, in North Carolina, and you had to make a lot of decisions of what that through line should be and what to focus on. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? And do you start filming first? Or do you know exactly where you're going right from the beginning? How does it all work? Yeah, that's a great question. We had somewhat of a sense of the story that we wanted to tell I think our approach really was to just start listening to people. So we went to North Carolina, started to make connections, get recommendations from the people we were speaking with about who else we could talk to, to kind of have them lead us in the right direction. But to back up a little bit, the reason that I kind of already had a sense of the story that we would end up telling is that I had done my undergraduate honors thesis research on the North Carolina pork industry. I was born and raised in the state and like most people grew up eating barbecue, but didn't really know much about where it came from. And I ended up learning about the environmental impacts of animal agriculture first in high school and then devoting most of my college studies to that topic. And like I said, did that undergrad honors thesis research on this. And I looked at the industry from a lot of different angles. So kind of unpacked its influence over the government, its rise in North Carolina, the kind of corporatization and consolidation of the pork industry in the state, looked at the history of labor rights organizing in North Carolina in the pork industry, of course, the animal welfare implications. And it was this piece in part that stuck out to me so much, this piece of environmental racism of people having animal waste sprayed on their homes. And this was about an hour, hour and a half down the road from where I grew up. So not that far, but it felt like I was learning about a totally different world and a practice that was just so egregiously, clearly unjust. That experience of learning about that, doing that research propelled me into activism, made me a vegan, made me go into addressing factory farming as the goal of my career. So I had had that background when we started filming and knew that the film would in some ways focus on that kind of element of it. I had already made connections with many of the people that we ended up interviewing. So Elsie Herring, for example, I had an existing relationship with Rick Dove, who's one of the water keepers who we had met with. I already had interviewed him. So, you know, I had some of the connections, some of the mm -hmm. people and knew sort of where to start. I knew who the major players were, so to speak. And then they kind of bridged the gap for us to other community members, other experts. We just started our sort of listening tour back then and, and saw where it took us. I think one of the challenges was that there were so many layers to this issue, and yeah. I'm sure we can talk more about that. So we definitely did get sidetracked <laughs> over the years of filming, but we kind of ended up coming back to that core topic that I had envisioned we would <laughs> from the beginning. Well, it, it's both a topic that, as you said, it's deeply shocking. Talking about the spray and lagoon system, which is, there's many different aspects to the pork industry in North Carolina that this movie touches on. But as you point out, the, the heart of it is really what they're doing to people with this spray and lagoon system. And just before we go any further, there are probably some people who are more familiar with it than other people what it is, but can you just give us the basics of, of what that system is and what it means to the pork industry and what it means to their neighbors? Of course. So in North Carolina, waste from animal factories, from factory farms, is held in these giant earthen pits that the industry calls lagoons, but they're truly just enormous open holes in the ground. So when the animals urinate, defecate, falls through the concrete slab inside the facilities and it's swept out into these big pits, they're the size of several football fields. They're really best seen from the air because otherwise you can't even really get a sense of just how large these are. And then once that waste fills up in those pits, the industry has to do something with it. So the disposal method that they've come up with is to pump the waste out through these gigantic kind of industrial sized sprayers. And then they spray the waste out over fields under the pretext of growing crops. But really, it's just a cheap way of getting rid of all of this manure. And it's liquefied manure at that point. So it not only contains the feces and urine from the animals, but also all of the different kinds of industrial chemicals that are used on the farm, the pharmaceuticals, 
toxins, heavy metals, all different kinds of bacteria. So it's just a slew of waste that's very toxic, very harmful, and it's just kind of disposed into the environment. It's held in these open pits and then it's sprayed into the air. And we know from research done in this area that it does travel. It can travel in the air up to several miles downwind. It contaminates surface water, so streams and rivers nearby. Groundwater contamination is a big problem too. And all of this is happening in an area that for a rural part of the state is relatively densely populated. And most of the communities in this area are black and brown communities. And so this issue of environmental racism comes into play because those communities are the ones who are suffering the disproportionate harm of all of that pollution that I just talked about. So that's really the crux of the issue that the film focuses on is this practice of the the lagoon and spray field system, as it's called, and the harms that that has to not only the environment and the surrounding ecosystems, but also the people who live in that area. Yeah, it really is fascinating seeing it because these people live right there. I mean, it's right there. Right. Also, they didn't just move there. They've been there for a long time. Can you tell us a little bit about that history and about the population of Eastern North Carolina? Of course. Uh, I, particularly, I was interested, I mean, you touched on in the film, the relationship between the history of slavery to who lives there right now and what their personal histories are. Right. So the film focuses largely on an, uh, a couple of people, in particular, Black women who have lived on this land in that community for, for many, many years one of whom is Elsie Herring. So she grew up in Duplin County, which is a county with the highest concentration of factory farms anywhere in the country and likely in the world. She grew up there with her siblings on land that her grandfather had purchased after he was freed from slavery. So this is land that has been in her family for many, many generations. She was born and raised on that land in that home that her, her mother had lived in for her whole life. And she went away to, to New York to study and to pursue her career. And then once her mother got sick uh, and older, she came back to take care of her. And that's when she started to realize what had happened, where the pork industry, a factory farm next door, a factory farmer, had not only started spraying animal waste on her elderly mother's home, literally right onto her home, because there, there really is not much distance between them, as you pointed out, but also had taken land from her family. So they had manipulated deed documents to quite literally steal land from Elsie's family, which is a common phenomenon for Black families in the South, and then again started spraying animal waste on her. So in Elsie's story, and in general in the stories of the many other people who we connected with, is a story about the legacy of slavery in North Carolina. It's a, this practice of exposing largely Black communities to this kind of harmful pollution is a modern day manifestation of that very same kind of system of thought, of the thought that Black people are less than and can be exploited in this way. And that shows up in the pollution, it shows up in the land theft, it shows up in the intimidation and the harassment that Elsie and many other community members have experienced. That's really the, the piece of this that we narrowed in on that just blatant injustice of, of that history and, and how it's still happening today. Yeah, one of the extraordinary things about the movie is the obvious attitude on the part of these companies, farmers and companies, and, and I'll, I'll ask you to separate that out a little bit, but that they could get away with this, that they wouldn't be fought back against, that they were just dealing with victims and they didn't have to worry about dealing with fires and they were wrong. But they also got away with a lot, no doubt about it. You were able to get loads of interviews, but you were not able to get a lot of interviews from the other side. So how was that process? How did you try? And I thought you you very cleverly substituted for it by finding speeches and trying to get the point of view of the other side across without probably being able to get a whole lot of interviews. Though there was one really interesting one that you were able to get. I forget his name, Tom. Yes, Tom Butler. So tell us a little bit about that process and what you were trying to get and what you were able to get to show the position of the other side, which I'm sure would much prefer that they were never asked about their position at all. Right. Well, I think it was challenging, honestly, for us to get interviews from both sides, again, because of the history of intimidation and harassment that people had experienced and the fact that I and my fellow filmmaker are white. 
white filmmakers coming into a largely black community saying, we want to help tell your story. That didn't initially go over super well, understandably, because there's just a, a level of trust that was not there. So even among people who are fighting this industry or who are concerned about its impacts on them, were reluctant to speak to us at first. So it took a long time for us to build trust with people. We ended up largely focusing on people who had already been outspoken, who had already been kind of public figures and, and assumed the risks that they knew they would be taking by speaking up about this industry. But so many people were not willing to speak to us because they were so afraid. You know, we even had an interview with someone who had worked at a school and was concerned that the industry would cause her to lose her job if they found out that she spoke up because they're so connected to the school board and the school system. I think all that fear is probably totally justified. It really is. It definitely is. So on that side of things, we had the fear, the hesitation, the lack of trust to contend with, which we had to take our time with, have a lot of patience to address and show that we were invested in this and we were going to keep showing up and we wanted to do this as right as possible. I don't think there's a perfectly right way to create a film like this, especially white filmmakers, again, making a film about racism. And I know we made mistakes, but so that was on that side. And then of course, like you mentioned, the industry was very reluctant to speak to us. We tried a number of different routes to try to get contact with them. We had our executive producer, Kate Mara, reach out directly to them. And that led us nowhere even. So like you observed, we ended up noticing that the public officials in North Carolina, the elected officials, were serving as a mouthpiece for the industry. And so they filled that role because they truly just repeat, in some cases, word for word, the very talking points that the industry wants them to say. So That's kind of how we filled in that gap. We had footage of the North Carolina Agriculture Commissioner, Steve Troxler. We had footage of U.S. Senator, North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis. And they're all saying exactly, again, what the industry would want them to say. In some cases, even bold-faced lies, like Tom Tillis says that residents moved into this area where factory farms were pre-existing and then started to fight it, which is just simply categorically false. Almost all of these people were there first and had had this land, as I said, in their family for many, many, many generations. So we were able to, I think, present that other side through the people who hold power in North Carolina, which I think underscores the fact that This is just such a deeply entrenched issue. It's so difficult to make progress on because the industry owns the government. Some of the quotes you got were astounding. And I particularly did notice that one of like these people just moved in, which she nicely juxtaposed with that whole history of this land, you know, was bought by these people's ancestors who got out of slavery, gathered together the money, got themselves some land. And this is what's being done to it. So that was a really nice juxtaposition. Tell us about, I think his name is Tom Butler. Is that right? How did you find him? Tom is such a wonderful, fascinating, interesting character. I had heard about him years before we started working on the film because he's truly the only hog farmer in North Carolina that I've ever heard of who is willing to be outspoken about the harms of his own industry. He's a real black sheep and he'll say that himself. You know, he's been ostracized. He's been harassed and intimidated and had surveillance of his farm done on the part of the industry. And he's still raising pigs, but he has understood that the system that he's a part of is deeply harmful. And he's been outspoken about the fact that his own neighbors are suffering as a result of what he does on his own farm. I think he, like many other farmers, got into this business after the decline of tobacco farming in North Carolina, not understanding, not fully realizing what he was signing up for. He says in the film, and he he said in, in many ways to us, you know, if I had known that I was going to be responsible for managing the waste, the amount of waste that's equivalent to what a small city produces, I would never have signed up for that. And his experiences being in the industry, and again, he's very willing to talk to anyone about this, has not been good. He's been so exploited. He has not received a raise in over two decades. He has had to make his own investments in his farm to try to reduce the harm that he's causing to his neighbors. At one point, he was even making an effort to install a kind of filtration system that would allow you to drink 
the wastewater that comes out the other end. He was that committed to trying to reduce his impact. But at the end of the day, he realized there's just no way of fixing this system. There's just no way of making this better. And so he's working to transition out of pork production and he's working on converting his farms to be able to grow mushrooms along with his son, just taking that on with him and going to improve it for future generations. But he was just such a wonderfully open, just uniquely open person to be able to reflect on that kind of harm that he's causing to very eloquently tie it in with racism and his own racism and that kind of systemic racism in North Carolina and understand that he wants to be a part of transitioning to something better and being a model for other farmers to help them do the same. Yeah, no, he was an extraordinary interview. It it was startling to listen to him. And it it, it brings us back to the question, which I promised we would get to is, can you talk a little bit about a lot of this movie is about Smithfield? I mean, Murphy Brown, which is now Smithfield. I think everything is now Smithfield. What is the juxtaposition between these individual farmers and the huge multinational corporations? I mean, i.e. Smithfield. And Smithfield, does it have its own pig barns? Or is it all farmed out? Like, I I think is more the case in the chicken industry. Who's in charge here? Most of the farms in North Carolina and elsewhere are owned by individual farmers. So they own the land, they own the buildings. There are some that Smithfield owns, but not that many relative to the total. So most of these are what we call contract farms, contract farmers. So they sign an agreement with Smithfield with the company, you know, the big company, whether it's Smithfield and the pork industry or maybe, you know, Tyson, we're talking poultry and some of those other, they're called integrators, other big corporations. And they essentially say, okay, I will raise your animals for you. And at the end of their time, I will turn them back to you. You'll slaughter them and and ship them out. And essentially what that does is puts the liability for everything that could go wrong onto the farmer. And that includes the waste. And again, as Tom told us, Farmers who enter into that kind of agreement don't understand what it is that they're taking on. They're not educated. The company doesn't totally lay out exactly how they're going to deal with this enormous volume of waste. And I think many farmers kind of enter into that in desperation, honestly, because there are so few other opportunities in rural parts of America. Again, in North Carolina was the decline of tobacco farming that kind of pushed farmers into the economic position where they had very few other choices besides going into this kind of production. And, you know, Tom told us, I think one of the things that really stood out to me that Tom said is that he'll go to an event, a gathering where people from Smithfield are present, where industry representatives are present. And inside the room there, all the farmers are kind of rah, rah, Smithfield, you know, they're very gung-ho and they're very supportive. But then he said, then you go out into the parking lot. And the story changes completely. And you hear from farmers how much they are suffering, how much they're buried under debt. And this is a common issue in the pork industry and the poultry industry as well, that these farmers are under mountains of debt. I mean, Tom has about a million dollars of debt. And that is so difficult to come out of. And so even if they wanted to transition to something else, even if they wanted to do something else, it's very, very hard for them to do so. And they risk losing their whole farm. They risk losing their land if they make the wrong decision there. So we were very careful in the film not to vilify farmers. Of course, there are some who fully understand what it is that they're doing to their neighbors and simply don't care. And I think those people do deserve to be criticized and deserve to be held accountable. But I don't think that's the case for the vast majority of farmers. I think like everyone, they're just trying to feed their families. They're trying to do right by the environment. And they're kind of put into the system in the same way that community members are. They're made to be complicit in this system that is so deeply harmful to people, to animals, to the environment. And I think if they had any other opportunity to to do something else, they would. Yeah. And I think that's really become the tactic for lack of a better word, of, of the animal rights movement. It may bring up emotions to think of what these people are doing to animals, but it's Smithfield who you have to go after. It's the big guys you have to go after. And going after the workers or the small farmers or whatever just is not going to get us anywhere. And, and I should add, 
I didn't realize that it was that much of a contract growing situation in North Carolina. And I think that in other places in the country, there are very big facilities owned by the big growers, certainly in Utah, I think in Iowa as well. The way the industry works, I guess, is mixed. It's interesting that in the South, which, you know, has long had a lot of financial problems and and issues that it has become such a, a particular place for such an exploitative system of these farmers. Going on to a different topic, but the one that was on everybody's minds, how did you make decisions about how to deal with the animal cruelty? You obviously care about the pigs, and there's no implication here that you shouldn't care about the pigs, but the whole thing is fairly subtle. A lot of it is done with visuals, and there are a few comments about it, but you did not decide to focus on that issue. Tell me about that decision. That's right. I think for me, having again, learned about this issue when I was younger, before I was an activist, as I was kind of becoming an activist, I felt so strongly that this is an issue that we should look at holistically, that we should understand as interconnected in terms of, yes, it harms animals, but it also harms people. It also harms the environment, you know, community members, workers. I I saw it all as very integrated from the very beginning of my journey as an activist. And I always felt that even within the animal movement, which is where I have landed in terms of my own career, we often overlook the the impacts on people. And I think that harms us in a number of ways. It makes us seem kind of short-sighted and insensitive to many people who don't care about animals or, or don't know that much about what they go through. And I think it also prevents us from forming connections, from forming kind of alliances with other movements that are working against factory farming. And I think the more that we can kind of make those connections, the more that we can work together, the more powerful that we're gonna be to be able to reform the system and to create something better. And so I always felt like this was a missing piece, that this, even within the movement of people who care about factory farming, which is the animal rights movement, there just wasn't enough of a conversation about the implications of the system for people. And so I wanted to kind of fill that gap with this film. And I also wanted to reach people again who may not ever be able to look a chicken or a pig in the eyes and feel connected with them. I mean, I hope that we can, as a society, get to a day where people can connect with animals in the same way that I do. But I know that's not where we're at right now. So our hope with creating this film was that it would be a very human-focused story that would allow truly anyone to connect with the people in the film, to look them in the eyes and say, I empathize with you. Nobody should have to endure this. These are fundamental human rights to access clean air and clean water and a safe place to live that no one should be denied. And I think kind of striking at that common denominator of human to human understanding and in doing so, broadening our conversation about how harmful factory farming is, bringing people in who might not otherwise care, I think that strengthens our movement. I think that makes us so much stronger. It gives us so much more power. And we didn't want to completely leave the animals out. And so, as you mentioned, there are certainly moments where we draw in their suffering and try to, I think Sean did a great job of this, my co-producer, did a great job of shooting this in a way that did kind of put the animals yeah. in your face in some cases. And I also really love that it was actually Tom Butler who says, I think the most kind of poignant point about animal sentience in the film, which is almost more meaningful coming from a factory farmer himself, totally. where he says, if you take just 30 minutes and you spend some time with one of these pigs, they'll remember you. They're very yeah. smart. They know you. They're really social. They'll come back and greet you. I really love that we were able to include that from this kind of unlikely messenger. And my hope is that those kinds of small instances of references to animal sentience will plant seeds with people who aren't vegan, who aren't part of our movement, and allow them to process that in connection with processing what this means for people and and how harmful this is for people. Yeah, well, I think you really, really hit that sweet spot because this has happened more in the past, I think, than it does now. But still, it's a problem. Animal activists can sometimes get caught in dealing with other people, feeling they're betraying the animals. They're asked to say something or they're asked to participate in, I don't know, the family-friendly ice cream social or whatever. There's so many ways that we can be asked to cross that line. 
And you managed to like not cross that line ever, not ever betraying the animals, but to very much broaden the focus while still saying it's actually okay to care about the animals too. <laughs> that doesn't mean you're a fool. Like it's okay. We, we can work together. We don't have to agree on everything. And of course you work creating your own messaging. And I, I thought it was a really, really good job of doing that because people are going to watch it a lot more uh, because it's about the subject that you talked about. And that's the real goal here. We talked already about the spray and lagoon system, but I wanted to come back to another question because sometime during the movie, there seemed to be an implication that there's a bigger plan here than just keeping the spray and lagoon system in, in business. And that their plan is to actually create a market for the waste, which sounds exactly right. You know, that's definitely the direction in which all of these industries are heading. It's their whole plan for saying we're not climate problems. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't remember who it was, but it's someone points out that they're delaying dealing with the system because they want our land. So there was this hint of this bigger project here. Was that deliberate? And is that what you think is happening? There's even more going on here than we realize? I think in many ways, this is just a, a huge corporation trying to colonize rural land. And I think that's what we've seen all over the place, all over the United States and elsewhere. It is this corporate capture of land. I think it was Elsie who said that, and I think she's right. I think these industries are likely hoping that at the end of the day, there won't really be anybody left to fight them, that they'll just have free reign to be able to essentially just plunder the environment, the resources and everything in, in Eastern North Carolina. And I think you're right to draw a connection between that and this move to generate more income from the waste itself. The industry calls that production of biogas. We call it factory farm gas, but essentially it's capping the lagoons, putting a big tarp over it essentially and, and trapping the gases that are emitted and generating energy from that. And of course, on the surface, if you look at that as a total outsider, you might say, oh, that sounds like a great solution. That sounds like you said, very climate friendly, but really all it is is greenwashing. It's just a PR stunt. It doesn't do anything to address the underlying pollution problems. It doesn't do away with that lagoon and spray field system. It doesn't protect people from this pollution and it gives the industry a way to make even more money and entrenches them in the state of North Carolina and other places where they're developing this because they're also investing so much in all the infrastructure to pipe that gas through communities. They're building pipelines in these very same communities that have been dealing with this for so long. And I think, yes, exactly like you said, it's just another way for them to plant themselves in this region, to cement their ownership of that area, and to just completely disregard and continue neglecting the health and, and well-being of the people who live there. The spray and lagoon system must be the best way to get rid of people anybody has ever imagined. If they didn't have people who, A, kind of have nowhere else to go, and B, are devoted, like, this is their historical land, and they don't want to abandon it, and they have a community, and they have no desire to leave, and are actually willing to fight, they would be gone, because who could live there? It's just, it's that bad. One of the things we've heard about North Carolina, the pig industry, is the risk of hurricane. And I guess it was during filming, that really, really bad hurricane, I forget what her name was. Lawrence. <laughs> Hurricane Florence came through and you had a lot of film of that. Do they not see the possibility of increasing hurricanes and damage in that area, which they're also creating, I might add, through their contribution to right. climate change? Exactly. Such a vicious cycle. But so far, they're still sticking with eastern North Carolina, I guess. And, you know, the hurricanes came through, a lot of damage was done, a lot of pigs died, horrible, dreadful deaths. And then they just like put it back together. Exactly. I mean, this has happened over and over and over in North Carolina. Growing up, I remember experiencing hurricanes there. It was a big deal. There was even back in the 90s, some hurricanes that caused just unfathomable destruction, so much flooding. And this is something that, you know, North Carolinians are used to this. This happens all the time. If you look at a map of the eastern United States, you notice like North Carolina is kind of sticking out there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So this is something that we've dealt with for so long. And as you said, it's only going to get worse. It's already getting worse. Hurricane Florence broke every flood record ever <laughs> that the state had had. So 
it is tremendously risky to have these kinds of facilities located in that eastern part of the state, the coastal floodplain. But I think the fact that every single time after all of this destruction, the industry just rebuilds and puts the animals back in is a testament to the fact that there's no political will to change this. Politicians are seeing this happen to their own constituents over and over and over again and are doing nothing to address it because their bankroll, their campaigns are bankrolled by the industry. They're controlled by the industry. And so I think there's just this profit-driven motivation that keeps them going, keeps them in business. And I think that there's a lot of kind of financial support that happens for the industry. Taxpayer dollars go into those kinds of repairs and the disaster relief. So I don't think we'll see that change. I don't think we'll see hurricanes or other kind of weather events like that spark change until there's political change happening in a parallel way. Uh, And it really does seem like not an ideal place, but I guess there aren't that many places for them to go. That huge, huge facility in Utah is closing because of they have no water. I mean, at Mm. least they may have too much water in eastern North Carolina, but no place is a good place to do this. Right. I think it's really interesting that Smithfield, a number of years ago, was purchased by a Chinese corporation. And I think one of the reasons that we continue to see pork production happen in North Carolina is that it's cheaper and less regulated there than even in China. This Chinese-owned company is saying, well, actually, we can still generate more profit by raising these animals in eastern North Carolina than shipping the pork back home. No, America has become the factory farm for the world. It's Mm -hmm. unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. Getting on to a more personal level, there's really a lot of evil in the world, as we know, and animal advocates have to think about it a lot and educate ourselves about it a lot. But for a long time, you were really embedded in something very evil. How do you manage that? I think this process of making this movie has been extraordinarily difficult for me, but I think there have been enough ups to the downs that I've been able to pull through it. I honestly wish that more animal advocates could have this kind of firsthand experience of the industry that we're up against because it's so enlightening. And I was in a place where I had studied this. I had worked at animal protection organizations. I had seen it from afar. I had seen it from a very kind of institutional level, seen it as a whole system. And honestly, that was quite draining for me. I think it led to feelings of burnout and and kind of detachment and numbness. And it was actually being able to kind of literally get my hands dirty and to connect with people who are fighting this in a way that's very different from how animal activists are fighting this. People whose very lives are at stake and seeing their families' lives be at stake, that was so meaningful to me and such an education, just such a wake-up call to what we're really up against. Seeing the power of this industry firsthand, there are no words to describe it. And we know that on a very kind of rational level, I think, as animal activists, as vegans. But I think I got to understand that in a much more visceral way. And I'm very grateful for that experience and really, truly just to be able to have had the opportunity to connect with people like Elsie and others who are so persistent. She had so much perseverance. She devoted her entire life to this. And being an animal activist, I've seen so many of my friends and colleagues burn out after just a number of years. And So I think having somebody who is that motivated to keep up this fight for decades was just beyond inspiring to me. So anytime I feel like I'm I'm teetering on the edge of burnout or feeling just so overwhelmed and so drained, I can think of her and remember the time that I spent with her. This is a spoiler, of course, for the film, but she did pass away during the course of the, the production. And I think too, just being able to now be in this place where we're showing the film to people. It's out in the world. People are really connecting with it. And most of our screenings have happened. We've done over almost 100 community and impact screenings. And those have all pretty much happened just because of word of mouth. People see it and then they want everyone else to see it. And that's really, really rewarding. It's really amazing to finally see people watching it and using it as a tool for their own advocacy. And that's really what we wanted from the very beginning working on this was for it to be useful, for it to be 
something that other advocates can take and use to build their own movements and educate their communities. So as much that's been draining and devastating as has been truly just meaningful and beautiful and amazing. So it's it's all kind of balanced out. I think the movie does bring some, I mean, obviously it's not exactly the same, but it does bring some of that personal connection and that personal inspiration to everybody who sees it. And certainly Elsie is an extraordinarily inspiring person and she just does not give up. Totally even-tempered, not a whole big emotional presentation, but she just does not give up. All right, you've talked a little bit about the reception to the film, but I didn't ask you directly, so maybe you want to add something. And then, of course, tell people how they can see it now, because now things have shifted and people can see it online. We've been really positively overwhelmed by the reaction to the film. I think, you know, as we were kind of speaking to earlier, we were careful not to make something that could be labeled a vegan movie, because I think that would have really limited yeah, totally. the scope, limited our potential audience. And something that I've been so encouraged to see is just the, the huge diversity uh, of the audience for this. The people who are interested in this have so many different backgrounds. I mean, we've done screenings at universities, high schools, but also so many different churches, faith organizations are taking this on, farmers groups, Public health professionals have seen it. We've done a screening to EPA officials, which was amazing. So I think it's it's really reaching people who, again, might not otherwise have sought out a vegan film or been interested in that. And I think it's, it's bridging a lot of gaps among those people, which I think is amazing. I do see that it's having an emotional impact on people, which is also what one of our goals was. We didn't want to make something that people would feel like they're being bombarded with facts and, and information and kind of talking heads. I think there's a place for those kinds of documentaries. They are very informative and they can really help people just download knowledge. But that wasn't our goal with this film. We wanted it to be something that generated a, a very emotional reaction in people. And we've definitely seen that. In most cases, there are almost always tears. People feel enraged. They feel so angry and so fired up. And that's what we wanted. You know, we wanted people to feel fired up to do something about this. So that's the best that we could have hoped for in terms of the reaction. It is available online now. As of December 12th, we released it on streaming platforms. So it's on Amazon, Apple TV, and iTunes, YouTube, and Google Play. So you can pay just five bucks to rent it or 15 to purchase the film. Right now, it's just mostly in English-speaking places, but we're, we're expanding that. We have translations in Spanish and Portuguese, so it'll be available in, in other countries as well. And we're, we're hoping to do more translations of it. So just as this is a global issue, just as factory farming is everywhere now, we hope to be able to share the film with people all over the world, too. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. And you mentioned how powerful word of mouth has been in spreading the word. And I would just like to encourage everybody who does watch it to keep that word of mouth going because it's not like you sit down at the end of the evening and you turn on Amazon and think, what should I watch? This isn't going to be at the top of people's minds unless they're told there's this great movie out there. You need to watch it. It's not going to be your choice necessarily if you don't know any reason to. So definitely keep that word of mouth going. And I'm just really excited about this movie. And I'm really excited about you coming on the podcast and telling people about it. And I guess I would like to know, though you're still in the midst of promoting this movie and making it happen even more globally than it already has, do you have any other plans for the future of additional filmmaking or different projects? I am very much focused on trying to get people to see this film <laughs> still, as you mentioned. It's, it's an uphill battle. It's not something that people are going to necessarily be excited to watch or to spend their Saturday evening viewing. So I appreciate you encouraging the spreading of the word about it. We had so much footage, so many compelling interviews throughout our four and a half or so years of filmmaking that we collected that we were not, of course, able to fit into the final movie. And I would hate for all of that to go to waste. So I would love to at some point revisit some of that footage. In particular, we had a whole section of the film at one point about slaughterhouses and the impacts that they have on communities nearby and workers. And I think that would be something I would love to try to explore some more, in particular looking at the impacts that slaughter plants have on women, on immigrant women, 
looking at the kind of spillover effect they have in terms of higher rates of domestic violence and violent crimes in nearby communities. And of course, then the pollution issues, there's a whole slew of other kind of pollution issues related to the slaughter plants themselves. You know, in the film, we focus pretty much exclusively on the facilities, the the factory farms, the CAFOs. So that's something that I would love to revisit. We had just incredible, heartbreaking interviews with a slaughter plant worker and a rendering plant worker, just stomach churning, heartbreaking. And I think there's room to tell those stories too. And I would love to figure out a way to do it that the final product ends up being a little bit less depressing, despite the fact that what I just described sounds absolutely horrific. I think we need some more levity. (laughs) I can't believe you're planning on going to an even more horrifying and depressing topic. But uh, good for you because, I mean, if we could just stop people from looking away, Mm. the world would change. So thanks for helping people do that, helping some people do that. And thanks for joining us today, Chevy. I really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. Social media is such an important part of the landscape today, even if you don't like it. But please do include our henhouse in your digital horizons. You can like us and follow us on Instagram and TikTok and X and Facebook by searching for our henhouse. Of course, you can always find us online at ourhenhouse.org where you can check out past episodes or support our efforts. And you're always welcome to email us at info at ourhenhouse.org if you have any questions or if you want to share something you'd like us to discuss on the show. Thanks so much and see you online. Anxieties are rising. Our first story today is actually from our friends at Plant-Based News, and they are reporting that Oatly wins legal battle to use, quote, post-milk generation slogan. I think this story just highlights the kind of of problems that all of our plant-based providers run into as the industry tries anything they can do to stop them, to make their costs go up. And and this is, you know, about what's happened to Oatly. And it's so ridiculous. All right. This was a lawsuit that was brought by Dairy UK, which is the trade association for the British dairy industry. So Oatly had this slogan that Oatly was for the post-milk generation. So Dairy UK decides to argue, take them to court and say that this term could not be used, quote, in relation to products that are not mammary secretions because there's regulations that restrict the use of the word milk on food packaging. They're saying it's the post-milk generation. They're specifically saying that this product is for people who no longer drink milk. And they're suing them because they use the word milk. Like, it's just insane. There should be sanctions in this case, in my opinion. The lawyers for Oatly argued that it describes the likely consumer rather than the product. Uh, Yeah. It it took four years to get there because lawsuits take forever. They cost a fortune. and, And it took four years to get this far. And the judge said this can't cause confusion. And that Oatly's slogan makes it clear that the products are for consumers who no longer consume dairy milk. Unbelievable. These companies not only have to start up a new product, they have to put up with this kind of nonsense. Ah, ridiculous. All right, our next story is more about Prop 12. Apparently, Prop 12 is a story that never dies. This is from the Washington Examiner. Farmers concerned about the effects of California's new animal welfare law. Like this has been going on for years and years and years. And they all like to act as if it just happened. It didn't just happen, as we all know. The new animal welfare law going into effect in California January 1st that mandates space requirements for pigs, cows, and chickens has some livestock farmers on edge. Doesn't it sound like, you know, they found out about next last week? Of course, they've been fighting it for years. And they mentioned that it involves pork, veal, and eggs. Of course, that's not true. And and it's about pork. Uh, the only people who are arguing here are um, are the pig farmers and the rules mandate hog pens to be large enough for an animal to turn around. Wow. Like, talk about luxurious surroundings for these, for these animals who, you know, are our food supply. They get to turn around. It's ridiculous. 
The article does point out that the Supreme Court, where the law has already gone, upheld it, ruling 5-4 that, quote, while the Constitution addresses many weighty issues, the type of pork chops California merchants may sell is not on that list. The article also points out that the National Pork Producers Council and the American Farm Bureau Federation contend that the requirements violate the Constitution's Commerce Clause because California represents less than one-sixth of domestic... That doesn't make any sense. It's because California represents one-sixth of domestic demand. I mean, they, they have a high demand and most of its pork comes from other states, which is irrelevant. Like, like once the Supreme Court says it's, it doesn't violate the Commerce Clause, it doesn't violate the Commerce Clause. <laughs> It's just so frustrating. In the face of Prop 12, this article goes on to say, producers are finding themselves at a difficult crossroads. They can either comply with a law they say could risk the health and safety of their livestock, or they'll lose out on market access in California. Just shut up. (laughs) It's impossible to get these people to shut up. The health and safety. Yeah, it's so dangerous to these pigs being able to turn around. All right, so Tasha Bunting is quoted. She's from the Illinois Farm Bureau. I'm sure she's a charming person. This is an added cost that will limit the number of sows that they are able to house. At least she's saying the real reason. It's not that they're worried about the health and safety, for which they quote nobody. They just say that. They do quote Ho for saying that this will limit the number of sows that they are able to house, which is actually true. Also, if they are trying to redesign barns, these added costs would definitely be challenging for our producers right now. Like by challenging, they mean um, that will cost them money and they will have to raise the price of pork. Uh, That's their idea of a challenge, which I guess is a challenge for them. And also other opponents, the article points out, again, not naming them, argue that group housing would result in worse health outcomes for sows because there would be more fighting and biting between the animals. Yeah, like they've been arguing this for 10 years. Well, of course it is true. If they don't give them any more room than they're giving them now, yeah, of course they would be fighting. The the whole point of the pens is that you can keep them in an unbelievably small amount of space and not have them fight because they can't reach each other or move. Some are calling on the U.S. Congress to enact national legislation. This is the real point. This is the next the next fight. Apparently, this fight will never um, end. Just because they won in the Supreme Court doesn't mean they can't go to Congress. So, as I said, some are calling on the U.S. Congress to enact national legislation on farm animal welfare issues within the next five years to preempt differing state laws. I mean, this is what the animal protection advocates have been arguing forever. We should have a national law and that way you won't have have different, you'll have an even playing field and everybody will be competing with each other. However, they're going to want a national law which provides that gestation crates and, and all the rest of it are just fine. So, you know, the fight is going to be on. Oh, there's such a joy, these people. Hordes Dairyman. Milk posts another safety record. Aren't you pleased to hear that? Milk is even safer than you thought it was. All right. They can't say this. They can't make this argument too much. The dairy industry does an outstanding job ensuring that milk for consumers is free of antibiotic residues. That's what this whole article is about. They have lots of evidence that that's true. Uh, This is apparently, according to them, which, you know, I believe them. It's closely monitored and documented under an actual law, Grade A Pasteurized Milk Ordinance, which requires that all milk must be sampled and analyzed for animal drug residues. So what they're bragging about is that they're complying with a law. <laughs> I thought they would do it otherwise. And, you know, in in one year period, that just 345 milk samples out of 3.7 million samples tested positive for animal drug residues. Yeah, who knows that? Like that still means that antibiotics are getting into the milk. It's just they're proud about that it's not as much as it used to be. But the real point here, which they never ever get to, is the big problem with antibiotics, giving antibiotics to farm animals, isn't the antibiotic residue, though that's a pretty disgusting problem. It's that the, as you all know, I, I'm preaching to the converted here, giving them antibiotics means that the that they can develop antibiotic resistant bacteria. And this doesn't have anything to do with that. (laughs) Just because it doesn't end up in the milk and and it's processed. They they stop giving them the antibiotics close enough to slaughter or whatever, uh, or do other other 
things to keep it from getting into the milk doesn't mean that they're not developing antibiotic-resistant bacteria, which is going to kill us all, including the vegans, which is so annoying. Oh, and that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. That's it for this week's show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be honored if you would join our Flock Friends community starting at $10 a month or $100 a year. Visit ourhenhouse.org slash support to check out our tiered membership levels with really great names, by the way. You can become part of our Chick Click, our Squawk Squad, our Hen House Heroes, or our Barnyard Benefactors. Some of the perks include being part of a community with great alliteration. I'm kidding, but I'm also not kidding. But some of the real perks include weekly bonus content and get this, monthly invitations to join Marianne and me for a live recording of an Our Hen House podcast episode, followed by an opportunity to meet with the guests. And since Our Hen House is a 501c3 nonprofit, your donation is fully tax deductible to the full extent of the law. Another great way to support us is to give us five stars on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts or leave us a friendly review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Also like us on Facebook where you can also leave us a review or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Our Hen House. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan. To Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast and to Veronica Kalinska who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. And special thanks to Jen Riley. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Thank you so much for your support, compassion, and for your dedication to animals. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye.